This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversations. What does national security mean? Is national security solely about external security threats? Do internal considerations matter in the national security imagination of a country? For that matter, do development and governance matter in the national security priorities of a state? To discuss this and more, I have with me in the studio Ms. Yamini Ayer. She is the President and Chief Executive of the New Delhi-based Center for Policy Research. She is a columnist with the Hindustan Times newspaper and has been a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Council on Good Governance. She is an, ex- an expert on governance, development and reforms. Ms. Ayer, welcome to the National Security Conversations. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let me begin by asking you about the conceptualization of national security. How do we conceptualize national security? Should we solely focus on the traditional aspects of national security or should we also focus and emphasize the internal uh, domestic aspects of national security? How do you look at it? Well, to me, it's self-evident. If we are not strong, how will we protect our borders? And and so uh, in that very basic commonsensical uh, sense of the term, uh, when you think about national security, you have to think about internal security. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think the two are uh, are different sides of the coin. They are, in some senses, the same side of the coin. If you're not strong internally, you're not going to be able to garner the resources to be able to protect yourself externally. Uh, and importantly, the kinds of challenges that you face internally, I think in many ways frame the way in which we position ourselves externally as well. India likes to increasingly project itself across the, across the globe as a global power. The projection of that uh, also comes with a certain kind of uh, internal uh, questioning, right? So as we project ourselves as an external power, how powerful are we as a people internally? Uh, What does it mean to be a global power when uh, you have deep inequality in your country, when you still have a significant proportion of your population living under poverty? That's one part of the challenge. The second part of the challenge of security is also a about your own domestic stability. Think about it this way. We are a country today which perhaps for the first time in our independent history has more students that are completing standard eight than ever before, eight years of schooling. That's not a small achievement. But the challenge is that about 50% of the children that are completing eight years of schooling can barely read a standard two text. A recent survey done by the NGO Pratham uh, on uh, the the young population between 14 to 18 found that uh, uh, you know, uh, a good 25% of children within the age group of 14 to 18 could barely read a basic text fluently. More than half of them struggle with doing basic arithmetic. Now, there are two problems with this, right? How are you a global power if a large proportion of your population is struggling with the foundations? But equally importantly, how are you a stable nation when a large proportion of your population is in some ways gaining new aspirations, but simply not able to gather, gather the 
skills to be able to be effective players and be able to fulfill these new aspirations. I have no disagreements with that. But let's put it this way. Security is security. Governance is governance. Development is development. Why this fetish about national security? Why do we have to bring everything under the rubric of national security? Is there any utility to that? Is there any functional utility to considering or calling governance and development as national security issues? Well, when you have deep challenges of, gov of governance and development, you inevitably have a lot of internal instability. And that stability leads to a very, very deep amount of uh, security challenges. I think it's well known, it's almost cliche to say a lot of the internal conflicts that we are facing in this country, very much part of the inequality failures, the developmental failures that India has, very much part of the failure of the state to deliver on its basics, which is then creating a population that is in many ways extremely alienated from the state and therefore questioning the legitimacy of the state. So I don't see these two as completely separate things. I also think it's very important to remember that when we use the word governance, we're not only talking about the ability of the state to deliver on basic public goods like health, education, food security and so on. By the way, it's important to note that in the world of governance and development, we have used the word security very much as part of our vocabulary, right? So you talk about income security, food security, life livelihood security. It's part of our vocabulary. We've expanded the definition of security in the world of development, human development. It's used quite common, commonly. And yet when we have conversations on the sort of traditional notion of security, this question of what is security comes up again and again. But that aside, uh, you, you know, the challenge of governance is not just limited to the state's failure to deliver on certain basics. The challenge of governance is also about the challenge of being able to do basic law and order, right? Uh, your governance, the, the ability of the state to, to perform its functions is also about the ability of the state to perform its law and order functions and that has a direct impact on, on the ability to deal with uh, security challenges of the traditional kind. Fine. Uh, you made this point about the repeated use of the phrase security, the word security in, in, uh, uh, in governance literature or development literature. Fine. I, have, I, I completely agree with you. But I think the, the debate is about whether food security or, or environmental security um, amount to national security. Um, now, there are, of course, the UNDP has a, a certain definition of what human security is. You could potentially say that's a human security argument. It's not a national security argument. Uh, but I think you seem to be saying that uh, um, because of internal instability and if a country wants to posit itself as a, a great power, then obviously you've got to take care of these things. And there, there is there's, there's a certain amount of seamlessness, as it were. Is, is that where you... Yeah, that, that, that's precisely where I'm going. I think that it's important to recognize that the, the challenges to... Uh, I mean, I'm using the term traditional security just as a way of sort of making uh, the, these distinctions, but I think the challenges to, to traditional security do find their roots uh, in uh, the vulnerabilities of, alt of other forms of security. And any kind of set of solutions to these challenges will inevitably have to deal with addressing these vulnerabilities. Even if you look at, uh, you know, th there are two parts to the discourse in India about how we are dealing, for instance, with left-wing extremism, right? One part of that discourse is very much about the securitization uh, and, and 
what we are doing uh, to, to sort of curb violence and, and, and almost bordering on coercion of the state. Another part of that narrative is very much about addressing these root causes, which is about addressing the, 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 vulner the human vulnerabilities, as you describe them, or the human security elements, because ultimately that is very much where and how these root causes of that uh, uh, of those uh, of of the security challenges are going to be resolved so i don't think that these are necessarily different i do agree that perhaps sometimes we do need to have different conversations about these because in times of deep violence you do perhaps have to focus a lot more on uh, the sort of uh, on, on on containing violence in and of itself right yeah that's that's my next point actually because you seem to be tending towards the argument that there are there are different sectors within a country and say, for example, um, the economic sector or the, um, the, the developmental sector or the climate sector can have implications for a country's national security. But there is a UNDP argument, which is basically that you have to take the individual as the referent object of security, not the state. Uh, the state, of course, is to be secured, but what is even more important is that you secure the individual. So there are, there are two contrasting definitions here. One is about the things that can go wrong internally, which will then have an implication for national security mm -hmm. or things that are going wrong on their own and they will have implications for human beings, human, hum, the, the individual human person. Which one do you think is more, uh, more, more robust in terms of uh, um, conceiving in terms of security, in, in the language of security? Um. Are we necessarily seeing these as, do we necessarily need to see these as two different things? Uh, I, you know, uh, let us not forget that ultimately uh, uh, in, a, in a country like India, most certainly these basic securities to the human being are provided through the state. So, you know, we, we are talking about a context where, uh, and frankly, even the UNDP's own imagination of how these securities are insured, they are insured through a strong state at one, it's not, not strong in, in the security sense of the term, but a, a state that's capable and a state that delivers, right? Uh, so, so in a sense, um, you, what uh, countries, what the security debate needs to engage with is the idea of the role of the state, right? And what this, the capabilities of the state to be able to look after the well-being of its citizens. And part of the well-being of its citizens is their physical security, which is in some senses the sort of traditional security. And part of the well-being of, of, of citizens is their everyday securities, which are the securities. And, and there are many contexts in which these two Inter, uh, interlink and, and, and connect with each other. And I think it is in that connection, really, that the debate, that the question of national security and governance starts acquiring its own relevance. And I see these connections partly just as functions of the state. I think law and order is a very, very important one. And partly as each one of these feeding into one another to create the kinds of instabilities and conflicts that, that, that then both affect your basic vulnerabilities as well as your physical vulnerabilities. Right. So the first thing is to sort of um, recognize something as a security threat or a security issue. The second question is, how do you go about it then? Do you go about it in the traditional militaristic securitized manner or do you deal with it differently? Let me give the example of the left wing, left -wing extremism. Um, you may call it the biggest internal security threat in India. And then you can, you can, you can either use military means in order to uh, deal with them, address them or 
you can say all right there is there are these root causes which you need to address but one one more question about um, um, the priorities How, do you think the indian state has managed to prioritize um, what is important as far as its citizens are concerned i'm now asking this because if you look at the uh, budget the budgetary allocation for um, education is um, health actually uh, is just 1% uh, of the gdp whereas uh, for defense it is 1.62% of the GDP. GDP, which is actually less than um, what used to be in the 10 years ago, 15 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, so do, given these this statistics, do you think we have prioritized enough um, and adequately uh, in terms of addressing domestic security issues? Let me put it this way. There's absolutely no argument that the Indian government spends far too little on its citizens in terms of their everyday securities uh, th than they should. However, we must also recognize that in the last 15 odd years and, uh, uh, you know, we have seen a significant increase in the overall uh, financial allocations that uh, budgets, uh, certainly the central government has been putting in. Uh, you know, of course, it's changed over years. It's changed over political regimes, but there has been an overarching uh, improvement. Nowhere near what we should be. There's been some improvement. To my mind, the real governance challenge uh, and, and, and the real uh, the real problem with the secure with the with, with the sort of delivery of public goods for India is uh, is really about whether rubber hits the road. Are our institutions of governance genuinely capable and effective enough to be able to deliver on the goods that they are supposed to? At some level, you could argue that the government of India, let's just take health or even or, or take education on physical infrastructure terms. We managed to build primary health centers everywhere, even in areas where you would least expect to see them, they are there. Uh, to some degree, we've been able to people them with, 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 with teachers and doctors. They don't show up, but at least there's some allocation has been made. The, the, the real challenges are in the ability to ensure that children coming to school are able to learn their basic foundational skills, that when you go to a primary health center, you're assured that you'll meet a doctor, that that doctor will give you the right kind of medication. These are, you know, serious challenges of governance, serious challenges of accountability, and importantly, serious challenges of the capacity of the state, just in terms of the sheer numbers of people that we have on the ground to get the job done, uh, you'll be familiar with the with, with these issues in the context of policing and, and the army. For sure, you know, do we have enough boots on the ground? It's the same crisis that we face, not even when it comes to doctors and teachers, but also when it comes to you know panchayat secretaries and block development officers and block education officers. The Indian administration is extremely thin. You know, this 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 problem about um, the state being unable to provide these public goods to people, to, to, to its citizens, is that it tends to lose legitimacy at the end of the day, right? It then leads to alternative governance spaces. And we have had such examples in, in Sri Lanka. We, we had such examples in uh, ISIS, in, in the Middle East, uh, where ISIS provided for, um, uh, for the, for the, uh, ISIS provided the public goods for people. We have some examples in the northeast of India. Um, why does that happen? How does that come in? We have such situation in the Red Corridor in the Northeast. Uh, is it because the state is unable to or is it because there is a certain spread of an ideology? What explains the emergence of this alternate, alternative uh, governance spaces um, in India or elsewhere? 
Well, so much of it, I think, is, uh, and, you know, there's a fair amount of literature that talks about this this as well, especially when there's a very weak state, mm -hmm. uh, that the role of the, uh, then the sort of insurgents and the rebels sort of, uh, to, to gain legitimacy and to be, to be able to also build up uh, momentum for potential future secession uh, and, and, and recruitment, uh, begin to start providing these services. Uh, I think it happens largely in the context where the state is extremely weak uh, and therefore there is a possibility to enter into that space and start providing these services. But I also think, um, you know, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a young PhD student who sort of brought this uh, uh, to, to my notice is that you also see different kinds of these uh, structures evolving. There are contexts in which uh, the rebel groups will sort of allow the state to continue providing basic functions because citizen expectations are that those basic functions will be provided. So it's sort of, it's not substituting for, it's kind of, you know, uh, allowing them to continue while the legitimacy of uh, of rule remains with the rebel group. Then there are contexts where you see complete uh, takeover when there is nothing actually. And even there, actually the, um, uh, uh, the expectation that citizens place then are also somewhat limited, right? Where you have had nothing, a little bit of something might be helpful, right? And, and I think in a lot of the uh, narratives that we've seen about uh, in 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 Chhattisgarh in the in the LWE stories, it's not like the Maoists have sort of replaced this with excellent health services and excellent schooling services. It's that there there, are, there is a there is more embeddedness. There is more, there, there's been an effort to sort of gain more ownership uh, and and uh, you know um, uh, sort of addressing addressing the alienation uh, more than anything else. And then small wins create legitimacy for the rebel groups to then uh, sort of continue to rule in a sense. You know, it is it is true that there are rebellious ideologies, be it in the Red Corridor, be it in Kashmir, be it in the Northeast. You have all of this. Um, but is that the reason why there are these alternative governance spaces or is it because the government has been unable to cater to the needs? Well, exactly. As, as the needs are not being fulfilled, then it becomes very easy to start providing those services. And frankly, you see this, it's not just rebel groups, right? Any uh, social, uh, um, any form of mobilization uh, often then becomes quite successful by replacing uh, the services that the state is unable to provide. So, you know, think about the RSA run schools, for example. It's a, it's a, it's a, in a completely different context. I'm in no way trying to equate mm -hmm. them. But when you have complete breakdown of services uh, and, and the, the, the presence of the government simply isn't there or, or uh, isn't there in any legitimate sort of way. After all, people know that the doctor is not showing up, that the teacher is not teaching. Uh, then alternative forms of service uh, of, of, of delivery start gaining legitimacy and start getting, yeah, getting you're traction. Making, you're making a linkage between um, uh, extreme poverty and insurgency, which is not necessarily true in all cases. It's part of it. It's not necessarily, it's absolutely not the full story, but it's certainly part of it. And I think it's certainly a tool that insurgents use. I mean, they also recognize that the, 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 there are needs that need to be fulfilled and these need, fulfilling these needs is also a form of gaining legitimacy, getting recruitment uh, and strengthening uh, the movement. But you mentioned, I mean, you, you, you're putting a lot of focus on services. Um, is is it enough to provide services or is it also enough to pro is it also important to provide rights? 
political participation, etc. How do you, how do you see um, the the um, I mean, how, how do we sort of reinstate the social contract between the between the state and the people? What are the what are the necessary steps towards that? Well, actually, I think that's one of the most important challenges, right? I mean, if you uh, if you look at um, just uh, you know the the two pronged approach that the Indian government has at least attempted on paper, regardless of what the realities is, to deal with some of the challenges of uh, internal security, right? Which is in LWE areas in particular, which is, you know, one is the very extreme form of coercion and policing. And then there's been this effort to, you know, address what they call the root causes uh, by uh, uh, focusing a lot more on development in LWE districts. There's now, a you know, th there was an integrated action plan in the UPA regime. There's now a special uh, central assistance that's being given about 28 or 30 crores that has been given to LWE districts. Um, uh, but, but to my mind, the challenge on the on this development front is precisely that how does a state whose legitimacy has completely broken down rebuild trust uh, to be able to in fact uh, uh, gain the trust of, of precise of this of citizens who have in some ways turned away from the state because they have all because they have felt this deep sense of alienation and that whole legitimacy and trust relationship has broken down I think we do have some tools. I think that the, the tool of PESA, for instance, is a very, very important tool, which is a Panchayati Raj Act, uh, you know, in 1996, uh, the, 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 the PESA Act in scheduled areas was passed. And, and, and really, the idea, I think, was extremely powerful, strengthening, using the mechanism of the Panchayat system, uh, giving special powers to the Gram Panchayat and the Gram Sabhas in uh, fifth scheduled areas uh, to, to create strong institutions of local government and that those could have been the conduit through which the developmental efforts could have been uh, uh, moved uh, uh, sort of uh, taken uh, made to reach people rather than through the traditional system of the state bureaucracy which had always been seen as quite alien quite far removed and extremely coercive towards citizens uh, and I think we are kind of losing out on the opportunity because we have completely ignored PESA altogether and instead are sticking with the bureaucratic architecture as a mechanism by which uh, to deliver uh, 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 public goods uh, public services uh, and rights to people How how important is the social contract in a country like India? We can, I mean, you know, the, the, the traditional security argument, the traditional military argument is that we can deal with what happens in Kashmir. We can deal with what happens in, in, in the Northeast. We can deal with what happens in the Red Corridor. After all, we have dealt with uh, these guys for a very long time. The country hasn't broken up. We've, we've sort of sustained ourselves. This is one of the huge economies in the world. We are a huge military power. So, so how important in your in your understanding, you, you look at the domestic angles of security very closely. How important for a country like India uh, it is to focus on the social contract? It's essential. I, 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 to my mind, I'm not sure that that's even a question that we need to ask. We are a democratic nation, and uh, the the people of this country, uh, uh, you know, have have rights and freedoms, and they exercise their rights and freedoms, and they will not sit tight and be coerced in any way. So I, I think that uh, you know, to my mind, uh, establishing the legitimacy of the state by ensuring uh, through through actually through democratic institutions. To in, by ensuring that democratic institutions function well and function effectively for the people is crucial to the stability of this country. In the absence of it, you will get short bursts of peace, as you do see all over, for periods of time. The state can coerce briefly and 
it re-erupts again because in fact I think the citizens of India want to ensure that the social contract is based on uh, uh, values of freedom, liberty and equality. I'm asking this question precisely because in 2006, the then Prime Minister Manmohan Singh called the Naxalites the single biggest internal security challenge ever faced by India. And then thereafter, there have been some uh, the Operation Green Hand and all of all of that. The influence that the uh, rebels had in the in the Red Corridor has actually come down. So the state has put its foot down. The state has used military means and has managed to eradicate some of the some of the quote unquote menace. Um, so the question then is that what is the way we should take? Should we take the military way or should we take the provision uh, of citizenship rights way or should we have a combination of the two? I think that you're oversimplifying what has happened in Chhattisgarh a little too much. I don't, <laughs> I don't think that it is as, uh, you know, I, I think that there are many, 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 many complications uh, in uh, w with the Operation Green Hunt. Much of this has been a debate that has been very vibrant in the public uh, domain. What it has done, the, the uh, uh, what it has done to the youth in these areas, the deep alienation that it has caused the deep coercion that it has caused the deep fear of the state in which people live we you know i don't know that we need to revisit that it is uh, the these are the realities and i think it they have therefore challenged the legitimacy of some of these approaches uh, and and uh, you know you see periods of calm in areas of deep conflict we saw that in kashmir as well there were periods of calm and these periods erupt if you don't in fact humanize what you're doing and i think the biggest failure I, if, if Prime Minister Manmohan Singh was thinking of the of the of the greatest internal security threat uh, in the context of the deep failures of the state I would be in complete agreement with him uh, but I think the inability to realize that it is the deep failures of the state that have caused the chaos that we uh, and, and caused the conflict that we are dealing with essentially basically leads you to a population that is even more alienated and even more fearful and who who, who will come back to fight as there has been uh, an increase of funds that are going into the LWE areas. Uh, but it goes back to what I said earlier. Um, you see, it's not like the LWE areas are, are not afflicted by the same menace of governance failure that the rest of the country faces, right? So you're putting in money into a broken system in a very exaggerated context, right? Where you're expecting this broken system now to deliver on even more. And also, let's not forget that a lot of these areas are also mineral rich areas. There's, there's, a, there's a whole other dynamic uh, uh, that is unfolding over here, right? Uh, and so, um, uh, so it, to my mind, what what we have been able, what we read out of all of this, and what we try to start implementing was a very administrative heavy push. So put in more money into the administrative structure as it is, and try and push for the delivery of development goods in some senses. We did a survey in Chhattisgarh on uh, uh, midday meals, anganwaris, uh, uh, the service the primary education scheme uh, back in 2015 and we had a, a group uh, the, the districts that we surveyed included uh, Bastar and then we also looked at Rajnandgaon Rajnand as a, a, a you know as it was a sharp contrast right and in 
on many indicators of basic delivery, you didn't find that much difference between uh, the government-run Anganwadi centers and midday meal schemes and so on in Bastar versus uh, in Rajnandgaon. You know, everything was the sort of baseline is, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that there are serious delivery challenges. And on that baseline, there are some uh, points of serious difference. And then there are some places where there are not that much difference. Uh, so that to me was quite interesting. There has been some, there was at least when we surveyed some penetration movement of grains into the Anganwari centers, movement of uh, delivery of uh, uh, cooking uh, materials, etc., for the midday meals and so on and so forth. But uh, it doesn't really address the core issue of the deep alienation that people feel vis-a-vis -vis the state. And to my mind, again, it goes back to what I said earlier, the need to strengthen institutions of participatory governance at the local level and use those institutions as the conduit through which government services are delivered to people. And we have completely ignored that. And the 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 the, the Forest Rights Act uh, along no, with the There's, there's a certain so, ideology, there's a certain vociferous, uh, rebellious ideology that uh, wants to take over power. What, how, how do you deal with them? I think that these things have to be allowed to play out in a democratic setting. Uh, and, and I think that the uh, democratic settings certainly create elements of chaos. But as the state is able to build its own legitimacy, you will increasingly see a very different kind of narrative that builds up. And the only way that the state can build its legitimacy is through being truly inclusive and truly participatory. Uh, the, the militarization and the securitization will get you, like I said, before moments of peace, but it's not going to solve the problem in the long term. So, so these coming. moments of yeah. peace are really critical times when we should be actually pushing for precisely the kinds of institutional changes that we need to create these stronger, more participatory governance structures that address this problem of alienation. What will happen to a country like India? This is a huge country with such disparities, such differences, such plurality. What will happen to a country like India if these kind of internal security challenges are not dealt with in time? You know, uh, about 10 years ago, we used to say very proudly that we are on a, uh, that, that India is at the cusp of this demographic dividend and uh, things are looking really good. Uh, our economy is booming. Our, uh, uh, you know, we are a young population. The future is truly, truly bright. I worry now that we are sitting on a demographic ticking time bomb. Uh, and if we don't take some of these problems quite seriously, we are going to have a lot of instability, which is going to affect all the things that, uh, you know, uh, our uh, external security establishment care about, right? The kind, the investment, the, 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 the trade, the, the internal stability and how we are viewed within the world, uh, you know. And, and so I think that, uh, of course, the two have to come together. I'm not, uh, you know, we do have to do whatever we need to do to secure our borders to make sure that you know after all uh, if things go wrong on the external security front everything is also going to uh, the, the the internal security is going to be affected absolutely but we do need to pay attention to both we also need to get quite real because let us not forget that uh, in 
in this moment of deep social churning that we are going through, uh, very often our domestic politics is drawing on the external, uh, on our external insecurities to feed into the domestic politics political narrative. Uh, by which I mean, for instance, uh, there isn't uh, very often in the last few years, I have noticed at least in the political discourse, right towards the end of an election campaign, Pakistan will come up. We are seeing a similar story unfolding in Assam over the National uh, Register for Citizens, uh, some things that, uh, you know, in the sense that, so, so we are kind of drawing on India's external security narrative to really actually play to a domestic political constituency to try and tell a very specific domestic story, right, which is to, to create certain kinds of uh, internal insecurities and conflicts that Unlike may... Earlier. So I think, I, you know, I, I mean, uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying unlike earlier and now, but I'm certainly saying in the now, uh, the, our politics is uh, uh, focusing quite a lot on creating an other, which suits uh, uh, a certain uh, political narrative and a communal undertone, which is now quite visible within our political narrative. Uh, and, and we are using our neighbors very often uh, as tools to feed into that uh, uh, other. And, and, and so, you know, you are actually in our political discourse seeing a very close coming together of some parts of our external and uh, and, and our internal, and you know uh, the the, uh, the the security of uh, the of uh, really I, I I don't think so. I mean, given the way in which we are drawing upon it, and I do think that the uh, the uh, so, so for political divisions, the external is quite important, but also for the security of 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 India, right? I mean, uh, you know uh, how we talk about Pakistan, Bangladesh, I think it's part and parcel of how how uh, how we also would uh, be trying to make our own Muslim population feel secure uh, in India. Right? So I don't think that these are very separate conversations, even in that dimension. Uh, and it is important for us to recognize. That's that. interesting. So you're saying that uh, from a very, very political point of view, there are these uh, um, linkages between external and internal security conversations. My last question, and that is about, you know, as the population increases and as the pressure of climate change increases um, um, year by year, um, and, the, and the regional divisions are becoming sharper, with, even within India, um, what is going to be, are they going to be, do you fear the possibility of resource wars within a country like India? You know, um, uh, we are, I think, uh, at some level already beginning to face this and we need to start uh, thinking about this with a lot more seriousness. Uh, we have, if, you know, f uh, disputes over uh, water sharing, river water sharing, right? I mean, the, the, the uh, Karnataka and Tamil Nadu have been at war forever and ever more, but it is getting accentuated. Uh, the, uh, uh, Goa and Karnataka were almost at war over the Mahadei uh, River, if I've got it right. Uh, you know, so uh, this uh, increasingly as environmental conditions, uh, uh, you know, bring new sets of challenges upon us. Uh, the question of uh, natural resources uh, and the shared natural resources across our borders. And we've seen, I, th I think the most live example of this is in river water sharing. Um, and, you know, we don't, we, uh, uh, it is also part of a larger conversation that, uh, that India needs to have with a lot more maturity than we are today about the change dynamic of our federal structure. Uh, 
uh, and and the kind of institutional systems that we need to be able to manage these uh, 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 the, these interstate boundary disputes, water disputes, and so on. Um, and I think that we have to be very alive to this, and we have to really begin to think innovatively about the kind of institutional mechanisms that we will need to put in place to ensure effective uh, uh, management and effective resolution. So, in other words, you are saying, it, if uh, correct me if I am wrong, you are saying that uh, governance and development uh, would have and do have uh, uh, implications for national security, but a securitized, militarized response is not the way. Absolutely. Wonderful talking to you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle NSC with HJ or our Facebook page National Security Conversations with Happy Mon Jacob.